This is Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. With the New South Wales government earlier this month announcing 100% of the state is now in drought, the longing for rain is perhaps stronger than ever before. Less than 10 millimetres of rain was recorded during the month of July across many parts of the state, prompting the state government to fork out more than $1 billion in drought relief. But these relief attempts, in what some farmers are calling the worst drought in living memory, have come after the storm, after the shriveling of grazing lands and the widespread mortality of livestock. So the question remains... What could have been done to prevent this in the first place? The New South Wales crisis is only one in a pool of international cases that shows drought makes people desperate. Not only when it comes to accessing palatable water sources, but in the measures undertaken to address the problem, which historically has seen us turn away from the rain-stricken lands in front of us and look to the sky. The Austrian psychoanalyst Wilhelm Reich was one of the first to focus their energies on building a technology that could produce rain, something he dubbed the cloud buster. The device, resembling that of a human-sized automatic machine gun, could supposedly be steered towards the sky and used to manipulate something called organ energy, a hypothetical life force, which could cause the clouds to part or form and precipitate. The Kate Bush classic cloud-busting chronicles Reich's attempt to make it rain... as well as his eventual undoing and imprisonment through the eyes of his son, Peter. The pseudoscience of Reich has been largely disproven over time, and his meteorological efforts as a medical professional died along with him. But this same concept of altering the clouds and manipulating the climate to relieve the pressures of drought remain alive and well. But the practice today goes by a different name, something known as cloud seeding. Okay, so cloud seeding has a long, ugly, ugly history. This is Stephen Seams. My name is Steve Seams, and I'm a professor here at Monash University. And Steve says in the past... There are those who've been sold the wrong science when it comes to cloud seeding. When there's droughts, people are desperate. And so you wind up with a lot of shoddy practices over the years and even downright fraud in cases. What's an example of that? Well, just you could imagine going out to desperate farmers or desperate communities and saying, oh, yeah, I'll take my plane up there and I'll do cloud seeding and you pay me however many thousand dollars. You know, I mean, and then the person goes and does it and really has no impact whatsoever. And, you know, desperate people are wasting good money on nothing. Stephen says there are two main types of cloud seeding. His specialty is glaciogenic cloud seeding, which involves pumping trace amounts of the chemical silver iodide into high elevation clouds, which combine with the ice in the clouds to form rain. 
And this pumping process involves an airplane. I'm kind of looking at like a skywriting plane. That's probably extremely rudimentary, (laughs) but is it like a plane (laughs) overhead and then it's spurting what it needs to in the clouds to form precipitation? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what you do. And you would have your weather forecast. Then you would work out where you want the water to fall. You would plan accordingly to try to fly upwind there. And then if everything lines up, then you would flip on the switch, turn on the burners, release some silver iodide. Then you would fly home. But aside from a few exceptions, Steve says over time, cloud seeding has overwhelmingly failed to produce any real results. I guess the biggest thing is just it's been so hard to quantify what effect you have. You know, I mean, you you do some seeding. This storm rains, this storm doesn't rain. I mean, did you increase it by 10% when you don't even really know how much you had to begin with? Um, It's always been very difficult to to determine how effective cloud seeding's been. Even after its particularly bumpy track record, just over a decade ago here in Australia, cloud seeding efforts to end drought took on federal status. In 2007, Malcolm Turnbull, working as Minister for the Environment at the time, put $11 million towards a cloud seeding trial using another process known as hygroscopic seeding which, dumbed down, attempts to make clouds out of blue skies. The trial, funded by taxpayer dollars, would amount to nothing and was panned by researchers, as there was no scientific evidence to back it up. The number of failed cloud seeding attempts in Australia and around the world, for the most part, has left a bad taste in people's mouths when it comes to the practice. With a number of these inconclusive examples, do you think that the cloud seeding practice is dying? Um, I, I think it's very limited. If I had money to spend, I would not try spending it in, in many of the ways that people still are. I, I mean, there are still many countries in the world that do a lot of active cloud seeding places in Thailand and China, and even in Indonesia, they do some cloud seeding. I haven't seen too many positive, statistically sound results demonstrating to me or convincing me that they're being effective. Again, it comes back to why do you think they're investing these energies into it? Uh, (laughs) It's hard to say. I mean, obviously, a, a drought at the wrong time can be very critical. And, you know, building up reservoirs of water over time can be very, very important. Um, you know, it's, a potentially could be a cost-effective option. It's worth noting that hydro-Tasmania has been cloud-seeding on and off since 1964, to some avail. But Stephen argues the specific topography of the region is what has amounted to this success, and it's not something that works just anywhere. Cloud seeding is perhaps one of the first efforts in a wave of practices now known as climate engineering. However, this engineering movement goes far beyond trying to bring about rainfall. In the fifth assessment report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, two climate engineering technologies, of which are also known as geoengineering, have been inscribed into the report. 
outlining they will be fundamental in helping us ensure we don't exceed two degrees of global warming by 2050. But unlike cloud seeding, neither of these technologies have yet been enforced, nor is their effectiveness known. So why would we bank on them so heavily to help us reach our climate goals? Today, you'll hear what these technologies are and question whether or not humanity has the right to engineer the climate. The first thing is to realise that we actually do not have any working geoengineering projects that are of the scale that we need or that are functioning well enough to be guaranteed that they would actually do what we expect them to do. This is Jonathan Marshall, a future fellow from the University of Technology, Sydney. And then how can we go so far as to bank on these potential technologies, inscribing them into something like the IPCC's fifth assessment report? How, yep. can, we, how can we then justify that? Okay, basically we can't. There are two types of geoengineering included in the report. Carbon dioxide removal, CDR, and solar radiation management, SRM. CDR encompasses a number of technologies, one of those being carbon capture and storage. CCS, in principle, is capturing carbon to store it underground, usually in an old oil or gas field. But trials of the technology, Jonathan says, have shown that it has a number of recognised problems, okay, really severe problems. In transporting it underground through a complex series of pipelines, it can escape to cause cracks and even result in an earthquake. If you get a sudden collapse and leak, leak, a massive leak, then it can kill people, okay? You only need about 15% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to kill people. CDR also includes ocean fertilisation, which involves introducing more nutrients into the upper ocean. From there, more phytoplankton form to produce oxygen and take in CO2, therefore removing it from the atmosphere. SRM, solar radiation management, instead involves reflecting the sun's energy away from the Earth to reduce the effect of global warming. Although there's an increasing body of research going into these forms of geoengineering, the continual lack of money invested and real results coming out of these practices, Jonathan says goes to show how they're distracting us from the bigger problem at hand. The point here to be really straightforward is that lowering emissions will solve the problem. Geoengineering may solve the problem. But are they necessarily removed from one another? Because geoengineering technology, as far as I understand it, is that bridging tech in terms of getting us to that capacity to be able to reduce emissions. Okay. That is the usual idea, is that geoengineering would give us some time. The problem is we actually don't know how long it will take to develop to do it properly. Technology, this level of complexity, and it is extremely complex, um, could take 20 or 30 years to develop, right? And we really don't have 20 or 30 years to play around with. 
whether or not we have the time, many signs are showing that this is where we're headed. Beyond the report, in another last-ditch effort to prevent the complete destruction of the Great Barrier Reef, there's been talk of cloud brightening, which involves artificially increasing the number of clouds above the reef to prevent even further warming of the waters. Stephen Seems, our cloud expert from Monash University, however, isn't convinced this would work. Do we have enough evidence to show that that could in fact benefit the reef? No, <laughs> not, not in my mind, but I, look again, I'm not actively involved with this. I, I mean, you could certainly run numerical models and studies and change the brightness of the cloud in the model and then sit there and say, okay, well, I've changed the albedo of the clouds by 10% or 20%. Look what affected it in the, the solar radiation reaching the water. But then also the other aspect is the practical really demonstrating that you can change the clouds in that way. That would be a pretty challenging task in my mind. The role geoengineering may play in mitigating the worst of climate change is more complex than the sheer science. With no in-situ examples operating to the scale needed for us to really kickstart our mitigation efforts, we can't fully know their effectiveness. And neither can we be completely aware of their potential hazards. If we start geoengineering in one part of the world, how can we be sure this won't have a negative impact somewhere else? And if this does happen, who's responsible for that damage? I think that they're really excellent questions, um, and they're questions that not only myself but, but other researchers across the world are also asking. Karen Brent has spent the last six years looking into the governance and legal framework of geoengineering and says the best way to describe it would be... A patchwork. The reason it's so patchy is because there are already existing laws, both international and domestic, that could be affiliated with different types of geoengineering. In the Ocean Dumping Act there are principles that may be relevant for ocean fertilisation should ecology be harmed. Other proposals for the use of stratospheric aerosols, mostly in solar radiation management, to reflect the sunlight, might breach the rules if they pose risks to the ozone layer. And on top of this, Karen says geoengineering also has the potential to trigger customary international law rules. So these are unwritten but legally binding rules of international law that have developed through consistent state practice and uh, belief that they are legally required to be followed as rules. And there's one that requires all countries to prevent significant transboundary harm to the territory of other countries, as well as to the common areas, like the high seas or the atmosphere. One of the big problems with geoengineering is that because the results are not controllable with any degree of precision. You could sit up situations where, for instance, parts of the world benefited and parts of the world didn't benefit. And the question then becomes, is this climate warfare? You know, are you deliberately trying to destroy our environment? For instance, you know, it's been calculated by quite a number of people that if you did GE, which benefited Europe, then North Africa could become completely devastated. The legal patchwork doesn't make it clear 
as to what would happen if geoengineering were to benefit one country while harming another in the process. There is international discussion around introducing geoengineering-specific regulation that would address these concerns more directly. International bodies are very aware of the need to be on the front foot in terms of developing strong law and governance frameworks before technologies are being deployed. But currently, there are no such rules in place. Well, not yet. So this is the first deliberate attempt by an international treaty body to make rules for geoengineering. In 2013, parties to the London Protocol, the convention regulating the dumping of wastes and other matter at sea, added a new article to include marine geoengineering activities, in particular ocean fertilisation. The amendments... Creates rules prohibiting anything aside from legitimate research of ocean fertilisation. And then in addition, it creates very detailed rules for how to assess the likely impacts and whether such a research activity should in fact go ahead. However, the amendments to this day remain in limbo. In order for it to be in force and legally binding, a two-third majority of states, of parties to that agreement, need to formally accept the amendment. Um, And at the moment, only, I think it's only two countries have done so. That being two out of 43 countries. And what countries are akin to this treaty? The United Kingdom was the first country to accept. I think since then, Finland has also accepted. Are we involved in this conversation as Australia? Well, the interesting thing is that Australia was a key player in negotiating those rules. The final version of the amendment, we were one of three countries that proposed it. But we haven't signed to make it go through yet. No, we haven't accepted the amendment yet. Why not? I actually don't know. (laughs) I don't know why. It's a good question. (laughs) With the only attempt to regulate geoengineering remaining on the sidelines, Jonathan Marshall from the University of Technology Sydney asks, How the hell would you administer geoengineering? Because it's so embedded in economy, you have to be out. You're spending lots and lots of money on geoengineering. You're not getting much profit back from that. Okay. So what then happens, for instance, if you've got an economic collapse and people think, well, we don't have the 10 billion a year to spend on climate engineering anymore. So we'll just stop it. What's usually thought would happen is that all of the global warming processes that would have gone on in the 10 years or whatever it is that you've been having the geoengineering would happen in in a couple of years because the solar radiation management would stop. So you get a massive change and the changes to ecologies might be so vast, so quick that most life forms cannot survive them. So you get massive extinctions and a reduction of biodiversity. You might even get crop extinctions. We just don't know. 
but it could well be disastrous. So do you think geoengineering is dead before it's even begun? I don't think it's dead because I think that people will will think it's easier to do that than to challenge oil and coal companies to cut emissions. Um, I think people will think of it as a solution, as desperate solution, but as a solution. Um, the question really to me is, can we do it in the time available? And is it in fact a better solution than cutting back on emissions? And the answer to those questions for me is no, it's not. It's much more sensible to cut back on the emissions drastically. Is this our human nature in which we feel like we have this capacity to alter the environment, to do what we want it to do? for whatever sort of motivation, whether that be, you know, encourage a weather condition to occur or to prevent the onset of an even more disastrous one. It comes back to what sort of power we feel we hold over the environment. Yes, it does. But I don't think that that's human nature. There are plenty of societies which exist in relative harmony with their environment. The problem is that we live in a society which does not like being out of control. And the problem with control is that once we start to control things, the more likely it is that we will have unintended consequences. But we have an embedded situation where um, a lot of people are not going to give up their illusions of control. And those are the ones who hold perhaps the most power and control. Well, what I find interesting at the moment, again with the negotiations about the NEG, is that basically the NEG is a bad project simply because of about 10 people in the Liberal Party. These 10 people are basically controlling Australia's entire energy and climate policy because the rest of the people in the government are frightened to deal with them. That suggests a real problem for the way that we do things if 10 people can in fact hold the whole of Australia to ransom and in fact hold the world to ransom. How do you get around that? And that's, again, one of the reasons why things like geoengineering become attractive solutions. We don't have to engage in politics officially to do them. We, could, we can just say, ah, we will do them, throw money at it. And, of course, a lot of people are worried that people could go rogue and just start doing it. And that would be probably a very difficult thing to deal with politically because of the unintended effects and are you declaring war on us and stuff like that. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts, and we're also on iTunes. I'm Jake Morecambe.